Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And our text today is going to be Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. This is following, this is the scripture following uh, where we were last week as we did baptisms the last two weeks. And we looked at baptism. And now uh, Peter has preached his famous, his powerful sermon as he came down from the upper room. And the Bible says that there were 3,000 souls added to the church. Today, we're going to take a little bit different look at this scripture. We're going to take a turn from baptism and we're going to talk today about the politics of the church. Now I know many of you may be thinking, oh, you're not supposed to talk about politics in church. Well, that's why we're going to talk about the politics of the church. We live in a politically charged environment today. I think that's a vast understatement. We're told church and politics are not to be mixed. The separation of church and state has come to erroneously mean today that the church is to stay out of politics and politics is to stay out of the church. Wishful thinking, but not possible. The church is inherently political by God's design. Today we will talk about the politics of the church. So before you jump to any conclusions, just hear me out today as we talk about this. I'm going to read to you our text, Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit today, illuminate your word. Lord, we look to you and we look to your word to teach us, to change us, to transform us. Lord, indeed, to conform us to the very image of Christ, that we would be a glorious witness for you in this earth. Father, we thank you for the grace that has been given to us in Christ. And we ask that you would make us, your people, your church, that glorious witness that is so desperately needed in these times. Father, for this and for all things, we give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen. The mission of the church is our politics. To say the church is 
Not to be involved in politics is to say the church is not to be on mission. The mission as the church is to make disciples of the nations and fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God through the advance of the gospel of Christ and his kingdom. The very word church carries a political connotation. Our English word church is from the Greek word ekklesia. In Greek culture, the ekklesia referred to a regularly summoned political body. It also could simply mean a gathering of people. In the Bible, it is used only twice in the Gospels, and it is used by Jesus both times. And the first time this word church or ecclesia is used is in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus declares that he will build his church, his ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is where Jesus asks his disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter chimes up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed it to you. From now on, you shall be called Peter, little rock. And upon this rock, this big rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are part of that church Jesus promised to build and our victory even today, 2,000 years later, even today in our current environment cannot, do you hear me church, it cannot be turned back. The word church or churches occurs over 115 times in the New Testament. The assembly of called out ones, that's literally what this word ecclesia means. This assembly of called out ones known as the church has been ordained, created, and formed by God to be the body of Christ in the earth to advance and establish the kingdom of God until it fills the earth even as the waters cover the sea. The word church, along with the mission given her by God, by Christ himself, defines the nature of all we are and all we do. It defines it as inherently political. This is no doubt controversial, but it is unavoidable. Now I keep using this word political and you keep envisioning something. And I want you to try not to do that. I'm not saying what you're envisioning is not involved in the word politics and political. But you see, we've been so conditioned by the world to think of politics and things political in only one way. And it's created so much controversy that people don't even like to talk about it, don't want to engage in it because it creates so many problems, so much disunity. What I'm saying is, the politics of the church is such that we cannot avoid those conversations. Because we are called to be someone and something in this earth. Listen to the words of Peter Lightheart describe this. 
The church's mission is the politics of Christians. It is not some kind of private, purely spiritual mission. He's talking about the mission of the church. It's not some kind of private, purely spiritual mission to which we add political activity. The church's mission is the carrying out of the kingship of Christ. Confronting the powers and principalities of the world. This is our politics. The church is our family. The church is our city. The church is our nation. And the church's mission is our politics. Close quote. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians that our battle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly realm. The mission of the church is our politics that war against our true enemy. If the church's mission is our politics, then we need to have a good understanding and working definition of politics. So let me define politics for you. I chose three definitions to present a broader context of what politics actually is. We often view politics as the business of elected officials in our capitals. O-L, the building, and A-L, the cities. That is a far too narrow view of politics, but it is the view almost universally held. We need a broader working definition of politics. So, from Bartleby Research on Politics... I quote, politics is the collective name given to many different systems, ideas, and real world issues. It is impossible to define politics as any one thing in particular, but as a label for many different aspects of life encompassed into one. Politics, I want you to hear this, politics is largely about decision-making, close quote. From the Sociological Dictionary, the definition of politics is the art of the exercise of power, the combination of individuals or parties or groups making decisions that affect others and institutions like our government or our legal system or the military or police. Let me start again. The combination of individuals or parties making decisions that affect others and institutions that governs based on those decisions. Or, according to the simple English Wikipedia... This is my favorite one. Politics is the way that people living in groups makes decision. The only thing I would add to that is also is people living outside of groups. Because the decisions you make as individuals ultimately will affect the group. I like the last and most simple definition. 
Politics is the way people living in groups makes decisions. Politics then is about making decisions that will ultimately govern us at every level. This is true for individuals and families as well as political parties and politicians. There is a way we all make decisions. As Christians, how should we make decisions? That's a question we need to think about. As Christians, how should we make decisions? I submit to you that God and his word should inform our decisions. I don't think any Christian, any professing Christian who understands anything about Christianity would disagree with that. But what we say and what we actually practice, as you know, are not always the same things. It's not that there is chapter and verse for every decision we make. There's not. It is that every chapter and verse of Scripture contains the wisdom for making our decisions. So there's no Scripture that tells you what color car you should buy, or what kind of shoes you should wear, or what color shirt you should put on today. There's no Scripture that tells you those types of things, but the wisdom of Scripture can tell you how you should dress how you should work, how you should eat, how you should live, how you should interact with your family and your friends. It can tell you a lot of things about yourself and about your interaction with other people. The scripture not only gives us our mission as the church and as Christians, but it gives us the wisdom to carry it out. If it is accurate to say that politics is the way that people living in groups make decisions and those decisions ultimately govern us, then the church's mission is indeed our politics. You see where I'm going with this? The word politics, the Greek etymology of this, is about citizens and cities. The, word, the Greek word polis is the word city. Politics is about cities and citizens. The decisions we make individually as a group, as families, as a church, affects, it affects our city. It affects the citizens in our city. Now we might not immediately see those connections, but I promise you they're there. And all you have to do is look at the culture we're living in today to know that decisions that have been made over the past century, in the church and outside of the church, are now greatly affecting us today. And many of those decisions were made long before we were ever born. So the politics of the past is affecting, in great ways, the reality of our present. And this is why we need to understand the politics of the church Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many words, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. That's what Peter told those people listening to him. After, remember, they cried out and said, What shall we do? And Peter said, Every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. It wasn't the water that saved them. 
It was their outcry to God that saved them. Their outcry saying, what can we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? That indicates right there that their hearts were turned. There was repentance there because they realized that they had crucified the Christ, the Lord of glory. And now they were crying out for salvation. And Peter said, here's what you do. You don't just say things with your mouth. It's not just your word, it's your actions. Put your water where your mouth is. Identify yourself with Jesus Christ. Become a real follower of him and live for him and live for his glory. And that's what those men do did that day. And this verse here in verse 40, it says, with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Peter is imploring those hearing his words to be saved from what he calls a perverse generation. Now, I don't know about you, but this made me pause and ask, how does a generation become perverse? Now, we are a church that believes in the doctrine of uh, total depravity or original sin. So in one sense, we know exactly how a generation becomes perverse. But today we're talking about the politics of the church and we're talking about how we make decisions and why we make the decisions we made. And this generation became known as a perverse generation because of the culmination of, of decisions they made. And, and all of that culminated in one great decision, one tragic decision for many, but a glorious decision for us who have been saved by the death, by the crucifixion of Jesus. The murder of the Son of God has resulted in the salvation of the world. Think about that for a moment. What's the most horrendous crime ever committed? It was the murder of the Son of God. But yet through that murder, that intentional, malicious murder, and many of these men here were part of that murder when they cried out, crucify him. Now they're crying out, how can we be saved? Because God in his grace, by the Holy Spirit, has opened their eyes, caused them to come alive. And Peter says, put your water where your mouth is. Live for Jesus. Not just with your words, but with your life, with your actions. How does a generation become perverse? If by definition, politics is the way people living in groups makes decisions, then it's fair to say that politics will determine whether a generation is considered perverse. Our decisions and how we make them matter individually and in groups. Because no group ever made a, a decision without the individuals present in that group. Think about it. The decisions people make individually and in groups at every level of society mold and shape every generation for good or for evil. The grace of God gives us the power and the ability to do his will, to make decisions that will ultimately shape the generations. And this is why Jesus calls us to be salt and light. The word Peter uses to describe his generation is the Greek word skolios, which means crooked. Skoliosis is a condition where someone's spine is crooked. Why is it called that? Because ultimately it comes from this Greek word that means crooked. It is describing a generation that is not what it should be. It should be straight, just, and moral, but instead it's crooked, corrupt, and perverse. 
In verses 41 and 42, Peter goes on and says, Then those who, were glad, who gladly received his word were baptized, and about that day 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So these 3,000 souls were not just baptized... They weren't just saved out of this perverse generation and now they're content to just live out their lives and go to heaven one day. No, it says that they gladly received the word. They were baptized. They were added to the church. But it says in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Doesn't mean they just ate lunch together, it means they came to the table of the Lord. This is why we come to the table of the Lord every week. Because this is the practice of the church. They broke bread together, which meant more than just eating lunch together. It meant that they observed the table of the Lord. They proclaimed, they remembered the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was given up for them, that gave them their very life. By God's grace, those who gladly received his word and were baptized continued steadfastly in the ways of Christ and his kingdom. They did not continue in the ways of their perverse generation, but they were saved from it. Remember, Peter says, repent and be baptized. And repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action or a change of life. In continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers, they were no longer making decisions based on the ways of a perverse generation. They were learning a new way to think and a new way to live. They were now making decisions based on a new life in Christ. They were new creations, making new decisions based on a new mission The mission of the church. In short, the mission of the church became their politics. Now, having identified with Christ, having been born again of the Spirit, their politics changed. Their process of making decisions and the very decisions they made changed. The information they now used to make decisions was different than before. The reality and the truth of Christ was now at the center of their decision-making process. The mission of the church was now their politics. It informed all things for them as it should for us today. I remember when my sister, who is in heaven now, was born again with saved. I've told you before, I wasn't raised in church. None of us were. And while I was a student at the University of Texas back in the early 80s, I remember getting a phone call from my mom telling me how my sister did a most unusual thing. She went to a church one Wednesday night and she got saved. And when my mom told me that, I didn't even know what that word meant. I'm like, got saved? I I couldn't wrap my head around that because I had never read a Bible. I'd never been in any church except with my brother who was Catholic and I'd go sometimes with them as a child because his daughter was only two years younger than me and 
But as an adult, as a young adult, I had no concept of what that really meant. But what I did know, and what I did see, and what I did discern was that my sister, who was the epitome of a radical hippie flower child, rebel, she graduated from high school in, the, in 1970 and immediately moved to Austin. She was the epitome of, of rebellion in that rebellious generation. And when she was saved by God, when God saved her, she so radically changed. Got my attention. And I'll never forget my sister. Because I knew her politics. <laughs> they were anything but Christian. I promise you that. Her way of thinking. Her decision making. In every sense of the word. But I remember something my sister told me. She said, the best way I can describe it, Jeff, is that when God saved me, she said, it literally was like I could see. She, she, she had never read a Bible either. But this is what she said to me. It's like, it's like something was removed from my eyes and I, I could see the world. I could see things clearly. And I realized that I had been blind. She said, I don't know how to describe it any other way. And her life bore that out until her death. The church's mission is our politics, not our political party. See, when we use the word politics, we immediately think political party, politicians. The church's mission is our politics, not our political party. I want to be very clear on this issue. I want you to understand that the mission of the church, which is our politics, is much more than a political party or any politician. Today, a, con a conversation about politics will very likely devolve into an argument about political parties. The mission of the church is much greater than that definition of politics. That's part of politics, but that's not all of politics. That's certainly not the most important part of our politics, the politics of the church. In the verses we're looking at today from the book of Acts, we see the New Testament church in her infancy. But we see her on mission and we see her politics. We see the decisions made by the church in her early days recorded for us in the book of Acts. And those decisions were made based on the mission given her by Christ. The politics of the New Testament church were not defined by the Pharisee party or the Sadducee party or the Essene party any more than the New Testament church is defined by any political party today. It's not the Republican party or Democrat party or Independent party that defines the politics of the church. The mission of the church is our politics. Our mission is defined by Christ, not by any political party or political movement or politician. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul, the apostle, writing to Timothy, the pastor. He says, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, listen, the pillar and ground of the truth. 
The scripture teaches, the Apostle Paul's words right here, that the house of God is the church of the living God and the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That means that our politics, the way we make decisions, is to be grounded upon and upheld by the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It's where the truth is foundational and the pillar upholding all things. Thus, the church is not conforming to political parties or the political winds of change that happen to be blowing on one day or week or month or year or political cycle. But the church is conforming to the truth that never changes. Politicians change like the wind, but God and the truth never change. It is political parties and other persons and institutions that are commanded to conform to his eternal truth. Christ is the truth. He is the truth that is to govern all of our politics, all of our decisions. The grace and truth that fills Jesus, that is centered in him, and in all that emanates from him, is to be filling the earth. This is the mission of the church. This is our politics. The pillar and ground of the truth that is the church and its mission. It informs all of our decisions as we are conformed to Christ, who is the Lord and who is over all. Just as it always has been, the church's mission is under attack by the politics of a perverse generation that we live in today. This is why they crucified Jesus. It was the politics of a perverse generation. Our enemy knows very well the commission given to us as the church of the Lord Jesus. Though he cannot he still seeks to stop us. And what does he do? Diversion, distraction, and deceit. These are the first and the greatest weapons the enemy has. It is the weakness of man in his sin, in his carnal, his fleshly mind. A carnal mind is the opposite of a spiritual mind. We all have a carnal mind that is being conformed to the mind of Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of sanctification. And as our minds are renewed and conformed to the mind of Christ, then our actions, our behavior, our lives will also conform to Christ. But it is the weakness of man in his sin, in his carnal mind that the enemy uses to divert us, to distract us, and attempt to deceive us. God's word is the greatest weapon that we possess. If you look at the, the, the spiritual armor listed in Ephesians chapter 6, you'll see that the only offensive weapon, the only offensive piece of our armory listed there is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is the weapon God has given to us to turn back the enemy. 
We must wash ourselves with the washing of water by the word. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus, looking neither to the right nor to the left, running the race and fighting the good fight. God, by his grace, will see us through and keep us on the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When we veer off the path, the precious Holy Spirit brings us back onto the path for his name's sake. And when we are tempted to get sucked into the world's politics, we need to remember that the mission of the church is our politics. When we are tempted to begin looking to a politician or a political party as the answer we need, remember that the mission of the church is our politics. And Christ alone is our hope. No man, no party, no brand of politics, but Christ alone. He only is our Savior. He alone is Lord of all. There are politicians as well as political parties, don't get me wrong, that are more or less conformed to the mission of the church. We should discern who these are, and as God has appointed all authority that exists, according to Romans 13, those authority structures appointed by God are to be governed by his truth. We are here to provide accountability as we make the mission of the church our politics. As we pray and work to see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means the decisions we make from where we live to where we work to where and who or what we worship and who and what we vote for or not are all decisions that are governed by our politics which is the mission of the church because our decisions matter. They make a difference. We're living that out. We're living the fruit of past decisions right now in the present. That means our present decisions will have an impact on these precious children you see in our congregation here. So in generations future, in decades to come, the decisions we make right now will impact their lives and determine in large part the present they will be navigating one day in the future. Just like the present we're navigating now is the fruit of decisions that were made in our past, decisions that were beyond our control. But here we are, living the consequences of them. So what do we need to do? We need to make the mission of the church our politics, and we need to make better decisions in every realm of our life, individually, as families, as groups, as a church, as the church in the earth. What area of life is outside the mission of the church? There is none. That means our politics are defined and determined by our mission as the church. Everything we do matters and our decisions impact both small and great ways our lives and the lives of the generations coming after us as well as our lives right now. That which determines the way we make decisions, that is our politics. Our mission as the church is to determine how and what decisions we make. This is our politics. God changes 
our politics as he moves sovereignly and powerfully in his church. That's why we are to never be without hope. That's why we're to never look at the landscape of our nation, the landscape of our culture, and throw up our hands and say it's hopeless. It's never hopeless because Christ is our hope. And in a moment, God can change everything. He may or he may not. But whether he does or whether he does not change things the way we want him to, he is still our hope and we are still victorious And the mission of the church is still our politics. And we need to be continuously steadfast and faithful in making those decisions from godly wisdom and godly information as the word informs us. Listen to verses 43 through 45. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. We often think that's what God needs to do. He just needs to come down and scare the hell out of everybody. I can say that word because it's in the Bible. We need some good old-fashioned supernatural manifestations. And then people would believe. They'd turn to God. No, they won't. You'd think the resurrection of Jesus from the dead would have turned everyone to God, but guess what? It didn't. And Jesus even predicted that it wouldn't. It's not in supernatural manifestations that we see God's great, great power most clearly. It is most clearly seen and most powerfully manifest in the life transformation of those who were once part of a perverse generation but are now saved out of it in living for the glory of God. That's where the real power is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common as many were now rejected by the perverse generation they had been saved out of. You do realize this is what's happening here. To provide for those in need, they sold their possessions and goods. They divided them amongst all and any, as anyone had need. They did this voluntarily, not under compulsion. That which is being described here is a far cry from our modern version of enabling those in need instead of truly helping them. These were not people unwilling or unable to work. Many of these were more than likely people who had been shunned by family or friends due to their newfound faith in the crucified Messiah. Their faith in Christ would cost them much, perhaps even their lives eventually. And it did for many. Still, they continued steadfastly in the faith. For us today, we're living in a time in which Christianity is considered a negative. For the first time in 400 year, in the 400 year history of our nation, the Christian faith is looked upon as a negative, not a positive and not a neutral. The politics of our culture has much to do with this. The more the church takes a stand for righteousness, the more we will be held in a negative light. Just as it did in the days of the early church, the church throughout much of its history, faith in Christ may cost us in many ways. The day may come when we are forced, like the early church was, to make decisions that affect our ability to earn a living and provide for our families. If the politics of our mission creates those adverse consequences, the church must stand ready to help its own. 
This is what we're seeing here in the book of Acts. This is not socialism or communism in action. This is the politics of the mission of the church. This is the church standing together, functioning together as one body, sharing what the other has for the good of all. Political pressure and persecution produces commitment and growth. That has been the pattern throughout the history of the church. This has always been the case. Throughout the church's history, the more intensely the church is persecuted, the more vibrantly it grows and the more vibrantly it thrives. Not the way you want to grow and thrive, right? I understand. The gates of hell cannot prevail. God will build his church through his sovereign grace and through his power. And this is why God doesn't ask for our opinion about how he chooses to grow his church. Because we would never choose persecution. We would never choose hardship, trial, tribulation. God, isn't there a better way to grow your church than that? But it's not up to us. What's up to us is to be faithful. What's up to us is to continue steadfastly in his way. No matter what the environment around us is like. Verses 46 and 47. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their bread, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What we're seeing here is not the strength of man, but the grace of God. When you get to chapter 8 of Acts, you see the persecution break loose wholesale. And the believers are driven out of Jerusalem except for the apostles. We're tempted to look at the continued commitment in the face of opposition from the powers and politics of the day. And wish the church today could be that strong and that committed. And by God's grace, it not only can be, but it will. We keep wanting to go back to the early church. If we could just go back to, no, we can't go back to the early church. We are the church today. We've got to be the church today, not the church back then. Because the way the church overcame back then is the same way we will overcome today. By God's grace, by God's power, by us being faithful and continuing steadfast in his ways. We're not looking to the strength of man, but the grace and the power of God. Man has a part to do in obedience to God, yes, in the politics of his decisions. But it is and will be the grace of God that carries his church through every trial, through every tribulation. That means it is God and his grace that carries you through whatever you face, individually or as a family or in a group. It matters not if it is political persecution, personal hardship, your health, your finances, your family. No matter what the challenge or fiery trial may be, it is God's grace that will carry us through victorious in all things. Because Jesus has promised that we cannot fail. And so we will not. Victory is his plan and purpose and it has already been achieved in Jesus Christ. 
In the face of hostility and even death, this is our peace. This is the assurance we have as we continue steadfast in his way. This is what we see throughout scripture. It's not that God delivered his people from every hardship. He obviously did not. It's that God was with his people in and through every hardship. He makes a way where there was and where there is no way. He did that for us while we were in sin and death. He made a way where there, where there was no way. There was no way for you apart from his grace, his hand, his power to lift yourself, to save yourself out of sin and death. You couldn't do it. It wasn't a decision you made. It was what he did. He is our only hope in life and in death. He is indeed Lord of all. Christ walks through every valley with us. He carries us to every mountaintop. He guides us in the darkness and brings us into the light. He is our ever-present help in time of need. He is alone. Christ alone, Him only, is our hope. And this is why we come to the table each week to proclaim his death even until he comes again. Because it was through his death on the cross that he took the wrath of God upon himself that was justly due us. And in his grace, he gave us life. Delivering us from death. Doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. The 23rd Psalm is a psalm written by a shepherd about life's journey. The 23rd Psalm is not about death. It's always read at funerals, but it's not a psalm about death. It's a psalm about life. He has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. The psalmist writes. He leads him through the valley of darkness up into the mountain meadows where there is a table, a mesa, if you will, spread before the sheep, even in the presence of his enemies. This is why we come to this table. God has prepared this table for us, even in the presence of our enemies. Our act of worship is giving witness to powers and principalities of his manifold wisdom, of his salvation. And in coming to this table, we proclaim with thanksgiving that wisdom, that salvation achieved for us in his death. You don't have to be a member of this local church congregation. But if you count yourself a member of Christ's body, a member of his covenant people, young and old, you are welcome to this table. So Christian, welcome to Jesus. We'll all be served and then we'll all take uh, the bread and the wine together. Let's all stand. Here is your charge today. Do not allow the world to define your politics. We may... And we do make decisions based on all sorts of things. 
the way we make decisions as well as the decisions that we do make must be defined by God and the mission that he has given us as his church. The mission of the church, this is our politics. We are citizens of a city, a holy city, the city of God. We are the city of God. This is what the scripture teaches us. That means that discipleship is our politics. Worship is our politics. Teaching and learning and education, it is our politics. The family is our politics. The church is our family. The church is our city. The church is our nation. And the mission of the church, this is our politics. May we understand this well and may we live it well. Not just for God's glory now and our good now, but for his glory and for the good of generations to come. Your decisions matter. Make them wisely. Your politics matter. Practice it wisely with guidance from God and his word. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you.